Well, good morning. It is good to be with you today. I'm excited to be here. There's only one other place I would rather be this morning, and it's not bed. It's Kampala, Uganda. You might say, well, why there? Let me tell you. Uh, a couple of, I guess it was summer of 2011, a couple of our teenagers went with their dads on a mission trip, and little John, Andrew Harrelson, and Abby Harrelson. And they went to Uganda. While they were there, they were working with this orphanage, Rock Children Family Orphanage, uh, and just fell in love with the kids, fell in love with what God was doing there, and uh, came back, just changed. Several months later, they found out that uh, that orphanage had a facility that they were renting, and that was no longer uh, available to them. And so living with that picture of those kids not having a roof over their head, uh, well, they just couldn't do it. So they came to me, um, this was by now, uh, I guess January of 2012, and they said, we want to do a, a fundraiser to build this orphanage. Through their dads, they'd gotten some numbers from Samaritan's Purse, and they said, we need about $13,000. And I said, that's a lot of money. <laughs> But I really felt like God was saying, just get out of the way and trust me. And so uh, we, as a high school youth group, engaged in a 30-hour famine in March of 2012. Um, locked ourselves in this building for 30 hours, fasted, prayed, learned about God's heart for the needy. And when God was, was all done with, with that, uh, we had raised $22,346. It was amazing. So they began, they began construction on that uh, over the summer 2012, and today, like today, they are dedicating those buildings and celebrating what God has done for them in Uganda. We got some pictures for you. We originally uh, raised the money, and we sent that banner on ahead. It arrived to them by donkey, um, and then, uh, I guess by air, and then donkey, not just total donkey. Uh, and then this is the, the finished product. Um, there's actually two of them, a guy's dorm and a girl's dorm, um, and uh, they still got to put some beds and things inside, but they're celebrating and dedicating those buildings today. Jim Harrelson is there, um, so if I could be anywhere else, I'd be there, but I'm happy to be here as well. In just a few weeks, the missions committee uh, is sponsoring a special night for our church. They're calling it Passport to Missions. It happens on Wednesday, May 15th. That's the Wednesday after Awana ends. And I just want to call all of us to participate in this event, particularly our children. Make this night a priority. You never know what God is going to do when children and youth get a heart for missions. So make that night a priority. Put it on your calendar. Last, week, uh, last week's message was titled, Why Bible is Our Middle Name. We heard from a few of our members who founded this church. We saw that there were two main reasons why Bible is the middle name of this church. Reason number one is that we believe the Bible is the word of God. And reason number two was because we are all about living our lives for Jesus and the Bible is all about Jesus. The main points are on the screen from last week's sermon. If you missed those, you can check those out. We're continuing with that same theme today. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14. Uh, we're going to look at verses 14 all the way through chapter 4, uh, verse 5. As we look at it today, I want you to keep several things in mind, several important things. This is, fall, this is Paul's final letter. He's in prison. He's awaiting death. 
This seems to have been written around the time of the Roman Emperor Nero. He was a brutal persecutor of Christians. This is not a house arrest situation. Paul had experienced that once before. No, in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says that he is in chains. So the human writer of this scripture wrote it with chains on his legs and his wrists. But the word of God cannot be chained. Praise God. The ultimate writer, the Holy Spirit, inspired it and preserved it so that we can have it today. Another thing to keep in mind uh, is that this letter is a call to Timothy for boldness and perseverance in the gospel, despite the suffering that it might bring. Read the entire book, and you're going to see Paul exhort and encourage Timothy over and over to not quit. Timothy was living in a climate of persecution, and his mentor was chained in a dungeon and about to lose his head. Timothy must have pondered quitting at some point. Wouldn't you have pondered that? So Paul writes to him, encouraging him not to quit. And one final thing I want you to keep in mind as we study our passage today is is the tone of this particular book of the Bible. You read through the the whole book, and you're going to come across great confidence, admirable confidence from Paul, but you're also going to see deep sadness in some of his words. One of Paul's requests to Timothy is for him to come and visit. Paul tells us that he's almost completely alone. Only Luke is with him at this point. Some have deserted him, probably due to fear. Some were unable to stay for ministry reasons. Some were sick, and others had wickedly betrayed him. I think Paul probably cried as he wrote parts of this letter. Maybe even the, the, the teardrops hit the page. Life is hard, it's confusing. Sometimes it can be very disappointing. And followers of Christ are not exempt from pain and loss and discouragement and confusion. Yet Paul's complete confidence in the sovereignty of God and the truth of the gospel keeps him going even though he's in chains in a dungeon. So with that context, let's read our passage today. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 4, 5. You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let me pray for us real quickly. Father, work in our hearts in such a way that we do not reject your teaching. Let us not be a people who want our ears tickled. Let us be a people who want your truth. Use your word in our lives today. May we not just hear it or read it, but may we do what it says. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. There's a whole lot of rich truth in this passage that I read, and uh, I do not have time to draw it all out. So I'd encourage you to look at it some more later. I'm going to show you three things from this passage today. First, the Scripture makes us and our children wise to salvation. Second, the Scriptures make us and our children open to sanctification. And then number three, the Scriptures are full of sound teaching, which many will attack and reject. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that we're going to spend the majority of our time in point number one, and we'll cover point number two and point number three rather quickly. Point number one, the scriptures make us and our children wise to salvation. We see that in chapter three, verses 14 and 15. At the beginning of chapter three, Paul provides a description of the last days, what the last days are going to look like. They're not pretty. Look at verses one to five of chapter three. But understand this. Then in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For, peoples will be, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul goes on to contrast himself with that description. He says to Timothy, you know how I've lived, you know what I've taught, so continue in what you've learned from me and what you've learned from your family. Paul clearly meant this description of the last days to be reflective of what Timothy was was already observing in his own day, but Paul also meant it in a future sense. And as you look at those verses, you have to admit that it is a perfect description of our own day, of our own culture. Paul does not want Timothy or the churches that he is leading or us to be deceived and enticed into this sinful pit So he calls on Timothy and he calls on us to continue in the things we have learned and become convinced of, which are able to give us wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In the light of the the current climate that Timothy finds himself in, Paul calls on Timothy to continue in the things that he has learned and become convinced of. So this is not just head knowledge, this is also heart conviction. And these things that he has learned are the things that will make him and us wise to salvation. It'll make us aware of our need for salvation. It will make us convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through him. Last week I showed you Luke chapter 24, verse 27. That's Jesus saying that the Bible is all about him. And there are other verses that say the same thing, and I've got them on the screen for you there. I just want to point out to you one, Acts 10, 43. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching to Gentiles about Jesus, and he says this, to him, that's Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled against a holy God, and we are doomed unless he forgives us. Forgiveness only comes through Jesus, his perfect life covering our imperfect life, his death taking the place that 
should have been ours, his resurrection securing eternal life for all who believe. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I call on you to do that today. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the scripture alone gives you and it gives us, it gives our children the wisdom to see that. As Paul is reminding Timothy that, that knowledge of salvation comes through the scripture, he goes on to mention Timothy's childhood and how he has been familiar with the scripture since his earliest days. And that word for childhood can actually carry the meaning of infancy. It's actually got the same root as the word that's used for Elizabeth's baby in Luke 1.41. That's talking about John the Baptist who's still in her womb. So Paul is saying this, Timothy, you've been hearing the word of God since you were a baby, since you were in the womb. Trust it. Let it guide you through this sin-soaked world. Now, let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. What, what, what scriptures is he talking about and, and who taught him as a child? Paul has to be referring to the Old Testament at this point. The Old Testament can make us wise to salvation because as you'll remember from last week, the Old Testament is also about Jesus. The Bible is about our King and our Savior, Jesus. The Old Testament predicts Jesus. The Gospels reveal Jesus. In Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in Revelation, Jesus is expected. The Bible is about God. Much of the New Testament at this point was still under construction. Paul was, was writing it even to Timothy at that moment. Uh, and he's talking about his childhood, so Paul must be referring to the Old Testament. Question, when you are teaching, reading, or talking about Old Testament stories with your kids, either at home or, or here at church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, does the conversation lead to Jesus? It should. It's supposed to. Who taught Timothy these scriptures? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 5. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So if Timothy was hearing these scriptures from early on, who taught him the scriptures? The answer is his grandmother and his mom. Praise God for grandmas and moms who teach the Bible. Their faithful instruction can yield fruit, great fruit. It certainly did for Timothy. But I want you to notice, someone is not on the list. Dad is never mentioned. Acts 16 opens this whole thing up to us a bit more. Look at it real quickly. Acts 16.1 says, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek. Now think through this with me for just a minute. Timothy's mom was a Jewish believer, which was likely true of her grandmother as well. She was likely uh, Jewish, but she had become a believer. It says Timothy's father was a Greek. That's a Gentile. And it doesn't say he was a Gentile believer. It just says he was a Greek. Timothy's mom had become a believer at some point, but apparently his dad 
had not. And at the time of Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, he doesn't mention Timothy's dad in his spiritual heritage. So I want to look at this for a few minutes from multiple angles, okay? First, dads, don't let this happen to your kids. If someone is recounting your child's spiritual heritage one day, don't let your name be left off the list. I don't want to be that dad who doesn't invest spiritually. I don't want to be that dad who's spiritually negligent. If someone's recounting my kid's spiritual heritage one day, I want to be on the list. Don't you? It's important to put food on the table. It's important to to put clothes on the body. It's fun to teach kids uh, how to tie their shoe or hit a baseball or solve a math problem, but none of those things lead to eternal life. You can can do all of those things and more. You can do all of those things with excellence and fail to invest in your child's eternal state. Timothy's dad is never mentioned. Don't let that happen to you. Don't starve your children. If the word of God, if we need the word of God more than we need daily bread, that was last week's sermon. If we need the word of God more than we need daily bread, then we're starving our children if we don't give it to them. They need God's word too. The sheer number of scriptures that demonstrate a father's responsibility to teach the word of God to their children is staggering. Just some of them are on the screen there for you. Dads, read the Bible to your kids. When you do that, you will communicate volumes to them. And when you don't do that, when you don't read the Bible to them, you will communicate volumes as well. Now, before I go any further with that, Let me just give you a little bit of biography and and a few tips. All right, biography first. When I was growing up, the very first Bible that I was ever given was from my church. Got it in first grade, King James Version, all right? Gave it to every first grader in our church. And my first grade teacher, I can't remember her name, but every week she'd have us open our Bible, she'd show us a verse that was really important, and we'd highlight it. And I've got verses through here that are highlighted. She was teaching me something then. She was teaching me that there are things in here I needed to know. I can't remember her name to this day, but I'm thankful to God for her. So my church is the one that really kind of started exposing me to the Bible. We did not read the Bible as a family when I was growing up. There was one exception to that. We always read the Christmas story out of Matthew and Luke on Christmas Eve. Other than that, we never read the Bible as a family. So when I was a brand new dad... And I heard pastors say, read the Bible as a family. I got seriously panicked because I didn't know how to do that at any other time except for Christmas Eve, all right? So how do you do that? It it has been through a lot of trial and error on my part. Sometimes Carol has come along and said, I think we ought to try something different. And that's a good word. That's a good word. But kids and teens, they need the Bible. How can a young man, how can a young woman keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Teenagers need it. They need it. There's a lot of things out there that can trip them up. So uh, here's some tips for you, all right? First, keep it short. Our Bible reading time takes about 10 minutes after supper, all right? 10 minutes seems to be a good uh, max. Keep it short. You don't want them to think, man, this is never going to end. It would be better for them to want more than to want less, right? 
So we just, we keep it short and simple after dinner. Uh, we've read through the two of the gospels, most of the book of Acts. We're currently in Proverbs. We just read a little bit at a time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are great places to start. Number two, don't present or picture family devotions as just moments of misery, okay? You don't have to dress up like a monk and a nun and read Leviticus and then flog yourself, all right? You don't have to do that. Devotional time at the Burns house often borders on out of control, okay? We laugh. Sometimes the kids get up and they act out whatever we've read, which can get kind of interesting sometimes. Sometimes they ask very deep questions after we're done reading, and I say, I don't know, ask your mom. Or, uh, or we'll ask Scott on Sunday, all right? Because sometimes I don't know the answers that they ask. Sometimes we get done reading and they say, well, what's for dessert? Uh, it just, you know, you just keep doing it. Uh, sometimes you get uh, a great conversation, sometimes you don't. Kids Zone, God Time Cards, those are a, a great tool. The Awana stuff is a great tool. It doesn't have to be a time of misery. Number three, we don't have formal family devotions at our house every night, um, but we do it whenever we can. We're not home every night. At least two nights a week, I'm here at church, Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, and there's other things that go on from time to time, and we're not home. We eat dinner on the run or something like that. So um, when that's happening, we're using Deuteronomy 6, 7 as a guide. It says to teach the Word of God when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you get up. The point is just throughout the day, all right, in the middle of daily life. My wife, Carol, has had incredible conversations with our children while playing in the backyard, while driving around town, uh, while doing the dishes, right before we kiss them goodnight. Seize those moments when a question is asked or a situation calls for a little instruction. Um, seize those moments. And then finally, just pray. Pray for your kids. You can do this with teenagers before they head out for school or work. Uh, you can do this at night before they go to bed. Just pray for them pray with them. I pray with our kids almost every single night, uh, when I, except when I'm not home, which does happen a couple times a week. If you need a little more guidance than that, I'd be delighted to talk with you afterwards. I've got a few resources that I've used. Some of them uh, worked well for us. Um, I'd also go to lunch with you and talk to you about it. Other pastors could talk to you about it as well. But we're talking about teaching the Bible to our kids because that's what makes them wise to salvation through faith in Jesus. We're talking about how Timothy's mother and grandmother did this. And I, I told you that we were going to uh, look at this from several angles. So we're going to keep spinning this for a minute and look at it from some other angles as well. If there are passages of Scripture that should encourage a single mom or a grandparent, it's 2 Timothy 1.5 and 2 Timothy 3.15. A book of the Bible is named after a man who had a spiritually absent dad. Timothy's dad was not a Christian. But God is not limited by an absent father. Grandma and mom were instruments in Timothy's life, and it made him wise to salvation through Jesus. They sowed the seed. They trusted God for the fruit. Don't give up, single mom. Don't give up, grandparent. Make that investment. Let's look at it from a couple more angles, okay? Okay. What if your kids are out of the house and you didn't feed them spiritual food when they were growing up? Or you wonder if you did it enough or too much or if you did it wrong. You could kill yourself with those questions, all right? I'd say three things. First, you can still speak into their life. 
It might look different, but you can still speak into their life. You will always be mom. You will always be dad. My mom and my dad still speak into my life. It could be that God has ordained that your witness and your words to them now are what will lead them to salvation. Second, pray for a Paul. Yes, Timothy had his grandmother and his mother, but he also had Paul. Paul came along, mentored him, and did for him what Timothy's dad hadn't done. So pray for a Paul to come into your adult child's life. In church, this is part of our role. Sometimes we have to fill the gap. And then finally, I would just remind you of this. We are justified by faith, not by perfect parenting. We're saved by grace through faith, and God is sovereign over that. Plenty of people come to faith as adults. And the cross, it's bigger and more powerful than any sin you could ever commit, including failures as a parent. So go to the word, be fed, be comforted, pray for them, speak into their life now. One final angle. What if you did read the Bible and teach them about salvation and drag them to church and pray for them? And and what if you did all those things and your child is not living for Jesus right now? To you, I'd say this. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father is never held accountable for the rebellion of the son. It's the son's sin. It's the son's rebellion. Ultimately, we are all accountable for our own lives. And there may be seasons where some of our children are prodigals. The scripture doesn't just tell parents what to do. It also tells sons and daughters what to do. The book of Proverbs uh, is filled with calls for children to listen to the instruction of their parents and to heed it and to do it. Proverbs 1.8, hear my son, your father's instruction, forsake not your mother's teaching. That kind of a call to children occurs throughout the book of Proverbs. So children, don't forsake your father's instruction. Listen to your mom. Parents, don't carry guilt that isn't yours. That's a trick from Satan to really weigh you down. Instead, do what Job did. In chapter one, we read that he would rise early and and offer sacrifices and pray for his children just in case they had sinned. So pray for them. Pray for them. We're on point number one. The scripture makes us and our children wise to salvation. Clearly, I've camped out on the children part, but ultimately the scriptures make anyone wise to salvation, assuming that they repent and believe as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. The scriptures are necessary for salvation. We can know that God exists apart from the Bible. Psalm 19, Romans 1 tells us that. We can know that God exists apart from the Bible, but we cannot know the gospel without the word of God. That's why Bible translation is a necessary work for an unreached lands. That's why the Bible is critical in evangelism. That's why Bible is our middle name. We need it to point us to Jesus. We can't be sustained in the faith without the word of God. Our faith will be weak. Our joy will be absent. And sin will have its way with us if we're not in the word of God. Scriptures will point us to Jesus, our crucified and our risen Savior, and it will show us how to live. And that takes us to point number two. The scriptures make us and our children open to sanctification. 
Sin will have its way with us unless we are in the word of God, allowing it to correct us and strengthen us and encourage us. This is what verses 16 and 17 are saying. All scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here Paul tells us that all scripture, that's the Old Testament and that's the New Testament as it's being written and put together, is inspired by God. It literally means God-breathed. Now that happened in a number of ways over a a period of time. There were times where God would dictate it. He'd say, write this down. There were other times where God would use the the human author's personality and and education and writing style and he he would just superintend that and communicate his word through them. Peter says it this way in his second letter, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So second Timothy wasn't just Paul's words, wasn't just Paul's letter. It was the, it was the Holy Spirit's letter through Paul, using him and the way he wrote and the vocabulary that he had. Doctrine of inspiration, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to study. We're not going to dive into that deeply this morning. We're looking at how the inspired scripture works in our lives. In 2 Timothy 3, we see that it does four profitable things for us and for our children. First, it teaches us. The scripture instructs us how to live. It provides us with what is necessary for godliness. It tells us who God is, what he's like, what he expects, how to be saved, how to live a spirit-empowered, obedient life. It provides the principles needed for being a godly spouse, a loving parent, an honoring child, a good employee, a loving neighbor. As we said last week, it does not answer every single question that we have, but it tells us everything we need to know in order to live wise and godly lives. Scripture teaches us how to live. The second thing that the scripture does is provide reproof. This word carries the idea of rebuking in order to convict and lead to change. Scripture reproofs us of behavior and incorrect doctrine. Let me try and just give you some example of how this would look, all right? When a child is trying to stick something into a power outlet, a parent typically yells, no, and they smack the child's hand away. At least that's what I do, all right? If a child is about to run out into the busy street, a parent might scream, no, and grab the child. You wouldn't say, oh, Johnny, please don't do that. No, you say, no, and you grab them, okay? The scripture is going to do that for us at times. It's going to reproof us. It's going to rebuke us. It's going to tell us no, all right? That doesn't necessarily feel loving to a child in in the moment, but it is. When the scripture does that for us, it is the love of God telling us no. Scripture exposes sin. It condemns false doctrine. It tells us no. As sinful human beings living in a sin-saturated world, we need that. A regular time of Bible study will sometimes lead you to passages that rebuke you for sinful actions. Now, a third thing that the scripture does is it corrects us. Now, you might wonder, well, how is that different from reproof? 
Now let me try and use some examples again to illustrate that. My son Zach is playing t-ball this year. I'm very excited about this, all right? I love baseball. It's a great sport. T-ball can get a little crazy because you've got a lot of little boys running around with bats. So you have to be very careful. And there are times where a five, six-year-old boy will pick up a bat and he's just ready to swing that thing. He doesn't realize that there's other little boys around him. So in that moment, you have to say no and you grab the bat because you don't want some kid getting his melon beat in, right? All right. But then there are other times where a boy comes up to bat at the tee and he's holding the bat wrong or he's got it in a way that's not going to make it easy to hit. In that moment, you don't say no, right? Because he's just trying to hit the ball, right? You say, hey, let me show you how to do this. And you correct the way they're holding the bat or the way they put it up in the air, right? So sometimes we say, the scripture is going to say no. It's going to reproof us. It's going to rebuke us. Other times it's going to correct us. That's going to be a little bit more gentle, a little bit more instructive. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The scripture tells us how to live And if we spend time in it, we will avoid walking into a big patch of thorns or we'll avoid walking along that slippery path. We'll go around it. We'll manage our money in a way that will keep us out of bankruptcy. We'll deal with that conflict in an appropriate way so that it doesn't become a divisive situation. The scripture will correct us. It will will help us know how to live rightly. Finally, uh, the scripture trains us in righteousness. The best way to think about this uh, is just to think of exercise. We exercise to stay in shape. We train so that we're ready for the race. The scripture keeps us on a path of health and strength. When we are in the word of God, we're going to experience all four of those things consistently, which will then enable us to be equipped for every good work that God calls us to. The scripture purifies us and it strengthens us so that we can be salt and light to the world around us. And that takes us to our final point, point number three. The scriptures are full of sound teaching, which many will attack and reject. In chapter four, Paul calls on Timothy to preach the word. By preaching it, Timothy will find himself teaching, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting his people. We've just seen that the word of God will guide us. Preaching is supposed to do that same thing. But Paul warned Timothy that not everyone would want this. He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Many in our day are doing this. Many today don't want to hear a sermon that tells them no. Many today don't want to hear a sermon that says, don't live this way, live that way. Instead, they just find people to tell them what they want to hear. They do this to the eternal peril of their own soul. Don't be like that. The Bible has been attacked and rejected by people of every generation. Paul said it was going to happen. Church history shows that it it has. The motives for that are varied. If I had time, I'd speak a little longer of this, but we're we're running out. So I'll just say this. When I was a student at ASU uh, in the late 90s, I had more than one professor 
tell me that the Bible was full of errors. And I didn't have a reply. It, it shook me. I didn't know what to say. But God was gracious to me. He held on to me even in my doubts, and I had plenty of them. And then I went on to seminary, and I heard wonderful replies to every single attack that I'd ever heard. And if you're in that situation, if you're hearing that the Bible is full of errors and, and, and you just don't know how to respond, um, I, I could point you to some books or to some sermons, to some resources that can help you work through that. Uh, the other pastors could do that as well. Michael Talley, the college director, could do that for you. There are answers. Don't take someone's angry attack as the final word. Look into it. There are answers. The law of the Lord is perfect. Take it and taste it and see it and feel it. It will make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It will revive your soul and it will lead you to green pastures. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to what's in your word. Help us to see it. Help us to believe it. Help us to apply it. Incline our hearts to it. As people who struggle with sin and live in sin, we're, we're not inclined to righteousness. Satisfy that spiritual hunger and thirst that we all have. Show us that your word can do that. Help us impart your word to our children for they need it too. May they not be a generation that does not know you. May they be a generation that loves and follows you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.